another podcast edition of the White Collar Crimes Podcast. I am Ryan Horn, your host, and so glad to have you aboard as always. This episode, we'll talk about an $8 billion Ponzi scheme, so nothing to sneeze at, definitely. Uh, You may remember, some of you may remember this case. It's not one that really got a whole lot of attention considering the dollar amount of this crime, so to speak, but it nonetheless is one of the top ones when you're talking dollars. When you get, especially north of a billion dollars, you're really talking big money, high rolling scheme. And this is by the man by the name of Alan Stanford, and even though it's not a household name among scammers and white collar crimes like a Bernie Madoff or any of the other ones that we often talk about, nonetheless, it is still a big time white-collar crime. Now, who was Alan Stafford, or who is Alan Stafford, I should say? He was born in Mejia, Texas, and that is a town that's it's a little southern Texas town. I believe it's in southern Texas. It's known mainly for being the home of former Playboy model and actress Anna Nicole Smith, being her hometown. And apparently his father was even the mayor of this town at one time, so... He uh, had some claim to fame a little bit, being from a somewhat uh, famous town, I guess. And his father, speaking of, was also the member of the board of directors for the Stanford Financial Group. So this gave him an early financial background. Right away, he got a chance to work in the industry a little bit and see what it was like. And again, speaking of his father, he and his mother divorced when he was around nine years old. And he went to live with his mother, but he did get a chance for his father to definitely make an impression on him as far as business and finance go. Enough to where he decided that's what he wanted to do. Now, he would later graduate from Baylor University in Texas with a B.A. in finance, even though uh, this guy would have been more appropriate probably for a B.S. degree, as you see. Joke inserted there. (laughs) But uh, you'll see in a little bit legitimate business was not really his forte so yeah it probably would have been more appropriate if he had a bs degree but he did get his ba in business bachelor of arts degree from baylor university in texas now some of his initial business ventures included opening up a gym in waco texas and i know especially you listening here in the united states that town automatically will ring a bell what is that town famous for for those of you that may not know 30 years ago The FBI raided the compound of a religious cult there led by a man named David Koresh, and the cult people fought back, shot back, and it turned into a very bloody melee, and finally tanks and explosives and a big fire and everything else was done before it was finally burnt down. The standoff ended after days and days and even weeks at a time. Very bloody ordeal, kind of a black eye for the... Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the government at the time involved in this. A lot of people thought it should have been handled much more subtly the way it happened, but it certainly put Waco, Texas on the map. But this gym that he had apparently right out of the gate did not do well, and it failed. Now, a lot of business people fail at a lot of business ventures before they hit it big, so that alone is not really that big a deal, and I don't think really lays the groundwork per se for him to decide to go the dishonest route and become a scammer because a lot of business people, as I said along the way, usually do fail a time or two with a business venture. 
so it's not all that out of the ordinary. But he did finally hit pay dirt in Houston, Texas, around the time of the oil boom of the early 1980s. And his father was involved at that time in this industry, so he kind of reconnected with his father. And his father and some folks at that time that were making a lot of money in this area were buying depressed properties and selling them for profit later. And they did quite well with this, he and his father and some of the other people involved did it well enough, in fact, where Mr. Stanford was able to move to the Caribbeans. And by the mid-80s, he had branched out into, into banking, but he began to kind of get on the radar of the British authorities concerning offshore banking. Now, he stayed under their radar and under the radar of a lot of authorities, mostly until about 2009. And it was at this time he got on the radar of the SEC and the FBI. And again, those of you that are listening from particularly other countries, that is the Security Exchanges Commission and the FBI is, of course, most people know that, Federal Bureau of Investigation. So these are two Fed agencies that he has on his trail and uh, as well as some state officials in the state of Florida where he was operating out of at the time. Now, the focus was on the Stanford Financial Group, and what he ran was, again, just a classic Ponzi scheme, which is the, it's like a broken record on this show, but it's just so true because so many financial crimes are committed by that format, the simple Ponzi scheme. In the upcoming book I have, which, again, will be out very soon, not long after you hear this, hopefully, uh, I will explain how a Ponzi scheme works because it's the most simple format, yet it's used overwhelmingly in all kinds of financial crimes. And again, if you're listening for the first time, you simply take money from investors, promise the world, and you use that money for yourself, but you pay off investors by money coming in from new ones. So it makes sense if you can continue to get new ones in, you can keep it going for a while. But when they stop coming in and when they all start wanting to demand their money and their returns, and when they start to get a little suspicious about the promised ridiculously high returns, the scheme collapses. And that's what happens with Ponzi schemes. And when they collapse, that's when charges are brought and people end up going to jail. But a lot of people get hurt because the money they invested did not go for investments, but instead to finance a very luxurious lifestyle from the Ponzi schemer. Again, it's just the most commonly used scam of almost any type we talk about on this show. And they were particularly concerned that time some of the people were with the higher than average returns. And it goes back, and again, I say that in that book, in this book coming up, if it sounds to be too good to be true, it probably is. And that's so true. It's a basic, simple thing we've all heard since probably we were kids, most of us. But it is so true. And I, I do talk about that a little bit in this book coming up, which, again, check that out when it comes out. We'll have some announcements on that which uh, we will also have on some other developments going. Like I said, the YouTube channel's coming out, and I'm sure those of you that are listening are knowing that we are having a podcast, a bonus podcast coming out with famous con man Steve Commissar. He was a guest on here a few weeks back, and he and I are in the works to putting out a big uh, combined podcast that will be highly entertaining and informative, so you definitely want to check that out as we've got a lot of things developing like that and more things we'll talk about on here later a little bit too but it is so true if it does sound too good to be true it probably is now stanford was pitching uh kind of really hypothetical results and 
the results actually what were reality and what his investors were getting spoon-fed and hyped up to believe were just simply wasn't reality. So investigators began to dig a little bit deeper, and they found him to be involved not only with running the Ponzi scheme, but he was also involved in some bribery and some money laundering, particularly along with the Ponzi scheme, but he was involved in a lot of financial crimes as the result of this Ponzi scheme. Now, what happened from that? Well, you'll get to hear that segment because this is going to be brought to you tonight, or today, depending on when you're hearing us, by the Weekend Angler, our good friend Josh, who's become a sponsor on here. Check out his YouTube channel, all kinds of great fishing tips and advice. If you're a fisherman like I am, you will really enjoy that show. So check out the Weekend Angler YouTube page, and Josh is our friend. We're glad to have him aboard on this podcast. So what all happened with him? How was he finally brought to justice? He's running a Ponzi scheme, taking money from investors, promising wild returns, but it just simply was not reality. So on February 17, 2009, as I said, 2009, he's on the radar of the feds. The offices at Stanford Financial, where he's taking this money and supposedly investing it for his clients, and the SEC charged him at that time with fraud and running an $8 billion Ponzi scheme. Now, it's not at the level Bernie Madoff did, but this is certainly not anything to sneeze at. It's one of the higher echelon scams and Ponzi schemes that we've covered on this podcast. Amazingly, Stanford really hasn't gotten the media attention of the Jordan Belforts and the uh, Bernie Madoffs and some of these other ones that we've discussed on here, but nonetheless, he's certainly no small fry or a little leaguer here. $8 billion is a gigantic scam. So he was able to convince a lot of investors that he really had it going on and he was going to be able to offer an awesome, ridiculously high returns. But that's a lot of times what does get people suspicious. And usually when these Ponzi schemes start to collapse is when people start to question that maybe this is not reality because they do in the back of their mind and in their heart of hearts, they think, well, maybe that old adage is true. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And in this case... Sadly, that is what happened. Now, his assets were frozen, and he was ordered to surrender his passport, which, again, that's kind of standard protocol for a case like this. But after initially being charged with a civil case, and a lot of times that is also not uncommon with the SEC. In fact, we'll be talking on an episode that Steve Commissar and I have on the con man and the cop, the... uh, A lot of times that is a standard practice where the SEC will first take it up in civil court before criminal charges are filed, or at least file the civil case before the criminal charges are filed. So initially, not really out of the ordinary, he was filed with a civil case from the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, and he was informally criminally criminally charged a few months later on June 18, 2009. Now, feds had discovered Stanford had misappropriated billions of investor funds and falsified their records to deceive the investors. So once again, just standard textbook Ponzi scheme tactics. No different. He didn't do anything really overly creative or cunning. He just simply ran a textbook classic Ponzi scheme. Now, he was set for trial in January of 2011, but a very unique plot twist happened 
When the judge determined initially that Alan Stanford was unfit for trial due to an addiction to an anti-anxiety med, therefore, therefore clouding his judgment and making it where he cannot aid in his defense. So kind of put a halt on the wheels of justice moving forward a little bit. Now, prior to this, well, prior after this, he was ordered to do some time in a federal detox center, get clean, get his mind right, and then where he could aid in his own defense, and then the trial and the criminal proceedings could move forward. Prior to this, though, he was also, prior to that being able to happen, I should say, he was being uh, reported to be have been beaten in the prison by another inmate, and therefore suffering some head injuries, maybe even possibly further clouding his judgment and reasoning. But the judge didn't buy it by the end of the year, and December 22, 2011, he was deemed fit to stand trial, and that's something that a lot of people really need to understand, and I tell this to a lot of classes that I teach, and as I've said before, I do a lot of adjunct work at these colleges in my area, and I've always told them, you can be deemed mentally ill and still found fit to stand trial. In order for you to be unfit to stand trial for good, uh, you have to be determined that you cannot reason, you do not know right or wrong, you're not ever going to get well or anything like that. You can be determined to be mentally ill and then maybe through some treatment and things like that get well enough in your mind to where you can then stand trial. So just because somebody's initially determined to be unfit for trial doesn't mean it's going to stick. In order for it to have to be permanent, like some of you may know the case of Ed Gein, the famous serial killer in Wisconsin, the guy that uh, was a grave robber, killed a few people, obsessed with his mom. Uh, the character Norman Bates from Psycho is actually based off this guy. He was found unfit to stand trial and spent the rest of his life in a Wisconsin, what we loosely term as an insane asylum, a mental institution. So you can be found unfit and then later made fit and ordered to stand trial, and that's exactly what happened to Stanford here. So he goes to trial January 24, 2012. Now, initially, the prosecutor sought a whopping 230-year prison sentence, calling him deceitful and a predator. Pretty harsh terms. And on March 6, 2012, the case did go to the jury. So not a long trial, despite the amount of money, really, that was at stake here. It didn't really seem like it was an overly complicated case for the prosecutors. And it quickly went to the jury. And even quicker they came up with a verdict. After only three hours, they found him not guilty, or I'm sorry, guilty. So only three hours of deliberation, which if I'm not mistaken, that's about all the jury deliberated at the O.J. Simpson case. I know it was a very quick deliberation, despite at that time the longest trial in U.S. court history. It was a very quick deliberation, despite the enormous amount of evidence that they heard. Now, this was nowhere near as long as the O.J. case, but this also took this jury only three hours to come to a verdict. And, of course, it said they found him guilty. A few months later, on June 14, 2012, he was sentenced to a whopping 110 years in prison. One of the longer white-collar crime sentences we've discovered on this case, and essentially just pretty much guarantees he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Most of the time, they're nowhere near this long. We have covered some, again, like Madoff and uh, 
Stuart Parnell and a few of the other ones that have gotten really lengthy sentences where it pretty much determines they're going to die in prison. Most of the time, for white-collar crimes, that's not the case. But the fact you're talking billions of dollars here, that could be the fact of what put him away for this long. $8 billion, again, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. And that could have certainly played a role in the judge handing down such a lengthy sentence. He was also ordered to pay a $5.9 billion fine, and he was banned from the securities exchange industry, which is, again, standard practice. That happens a lot. We've covered a lot of cases on here of people convicted of insider trading and different types of stock crimes and investor crimes and things like that, and quite a bit of them get that sanction as well, where they're banned from at least formally operating in that business again. Now, like we've also talked about on here a lot, there's nothing legally that can prevent them from working behind the scenes as a quote-unquote consultant. And you can take that for what it's worth that, you know, a lot of times a lot of businesses are still run behind the scenes by people who have been convicted of a crime, but they stay in the background and actually probably are carrying out a lot of the day-to-day business operating on as a quote-unquote consultant. He appealed his case in 2015, but an appeals case in New York, or I'm sorry, New Orleans, rejected his appeal. I don't know, he might appeal something again, but it's kind of looking like Mr. Stanford will spend the rest of his life in prison. Only time will see, and as always, if we get an update on it, we will do a little follow-up on it if anything changes in the case. And if you have a case you want to talk about, be sure and email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. And you can be a guest or give me an idea on the show. We've had both, and I love it when I hear from anybody for either. And would be glad to in this case. And also, like I said, follow our Facebook page, The White Collar Crimes Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Spotify. Please give us that five-star rating. Help us boost the ratings and get in that top percentile we're in the top 25 percent i would love very soon to see us get in the top 10 percent so please do that please check out your local pet shelter adopt your next best friend there wife have done that several times and it's always rewarding so please yes help out your local pet shelter any way you can check out my website ryan-horn.com if you need voiceover service i'd love to narrate your audio book any type of project you had, advertising, anything. I've done a lot of voiceover work, and I would love to do some for you. And you can contact me again that way at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. Yep, keep in mind, like I said, lots of big stuff going on, folks. The book, the YouTube channel, and the bonus podcast we will have with the Don of Khan, Steve Commissar. Again, you can check out his podcast also on Spotify here. He's on as Scam Junkie. And we will be doing some bonus work, he and I, very soon. So please stay tuned for that. Please watch out for your friends and family, for scammers. They are everywhere. And again, we do thank you for being part of this and helping this grow. Please tune in to us next week, and we will be glad to have you back for this one and next one. And just shining the light on a lot of crimes that just simply do not get the media coverage that your street crimes and serial killers and the gore and the blood and guts cases get. So please help us grow on this one. And we do thank you for being part of that. So we will see you all back here next week. God bless and take care, everybody.